Like, I'm kind of glad we're doing the Baxter building because I really would like us to have a week to get some kind of good fucking news in there. You know what I mean? Because otherwise, it's just the most depressing episode of Wait Whatever, you know? <laughs> but hey, we're, we're talking about comics we like for a change of Baxter building. No, that's totally true. When was the last time that happened? Hello, whatnots, and welcome to Baxter Building. This is episode 25 of the eternally ongoing series where myself. Graham McMillan, and my esteemed co-hosts, Laughing Jeff Lester. Laughing Jeff. Hello. Uh, go through the first volume of Marvel's Fantastic Four. Uh, we have, with the new year, Happy New Year, why not? With the new year, we have reached a new milestone, which I kind of like. Jeff, have you noticed this? We started 2016 by going into the the Lee and Kirpulous issues. Really, the Kirpulous issues. Mm-hmm. And we're starting 2017 by going into the John Byrne issues. Wow. It's like a milestone every January. We're like, okay, which means <laughs> I don't know where we're going to be by the time we start 2018. Heroes <laughs> Reborn. Fuck you. I was going to say, who even knows if we're going to get to 2018? <laughs> oh, oh, so sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, yeah, come Aww, on. I spoiled Graham stab at like blind pessimism. Oh. Which is which is rare. <laughs> it's true. If it had been me, it was like uh you know, it's like a bus. There's another one coming along in ten minutes. But you, Graham Hey, but no, this is not the pessimistic episode because as we were just saying, you and I both like these comics. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, the, yeah. Okay, so so this episode we're doing issues two thirty two through two thirty seven of Fantastic Four, the first six issues of John Burns run. Yeah. And he writes and pencils and inks all of them. You know, good for you, John. Yeah, seriously. It's kind of a considerable achievement, you know? And is this not is he not at the same time also doing Alpha Flight? Is he not also launching Alpha Flight around this time? Ah, uh, gosh. You know, I would have to flip. I know that there was the um you know, Jim Shooter's bullpen bulletins start to really come back in force around this time. So let me it's, see here. It's weird. They're, they replaced the letters page. Which is really strange. Yeah, it takes a while before they get back. I don't see them. It's probably in here at some point. I don't see I, it I right never now. Remember, yeah, I can yeah. never remember when Alpha Flight started. Yeah, because this is 81. Alpha Flight didn't start until after that. Oh, yeah, I think I think that's that makes sense. Yeah. I want to say Alpha Flight started at 84, but I could be imagining that. Mm-hmm. Hang on, I can even just look up because there's a subscription as in the first issue, and Alpha Flight is not mentioned in it. Yeah. So there you go. He's not doing Alpha Flight this time. Right. Which might explain how he has the ability to write pencil and ink. I love the fact that on the very first issue, issue 232, um, you have John Byrne's words and pictures, and then you've got Bjorn Hain. <laughs> which is a person anagram of John Byrne. Exactly, which, yeah. Which I, I love in particular because on the very next page, I guess we've just launched straight into these comics. I think uh, so. On, on the very next page, on the second page of 232, Diablo, who is the villain at revealed in the splash page, is also using an anagram of his name. <laughs> oh, that's right. Call himself Mr. Albade. Uh, see, like like all bad is the way that I so it's it's kind of a weird, dumb pun as well as an anagram. No, and it's worth pointing out, like John Byrne even calls the issue back to the basics, which is 
funny on 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 several levels, you know, because it's John Byrne being like, okay, here I'm coming with my take on the Fantastic Four and spoilers, I'm bringing it back to the basics. And also it has the FF fighting Diablo who has constructed uh, in the course of this issue a number of elemental analogs to tackle the FF. Um, and so there's nothing really more basic than the four elements. So, you know, well done, I, John Byrne. Well done. Also, Jeff, I, this is true of all of these six issues. Mm -hmm. The 232 in particular, does it not feel like an incredibly Stanley issue to you? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like, mean, I, like astoundingly Stanley. This is the most Stanley this comic has felt in a pile. Mm -hmm. and, and not least of all, because you have the most Stanley Reed Richards that, yes, that there's been a long time, including I was knowing stuff that, that. He, he did not know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's actually the part that I think is really interesting here. And I'll be curious, because I didn't follow this run very, very strongly at all. I just caught scattered issues when it first came out. I'm fascinated in this first issue, the things that Byrne does. And one of the things that he does is he brings back omniscient, unstoppable uh, Mr. Fantastic. And... It's tempered, actually, in this issue, like in a pure sort of Lee Kirby issue, Lee would have had it where Kirby would have plotted it so that it would have been like one person gets free of the trap, then frees the next person, then they free all the other people, and then Lee would have dialogued it as if it was Mr. Fantastic guiding them at every step of the way, and thank God admittedly Mr. Fantastic is the only person who escapes his um, mismatched elemental analog and then frees Johnny. But then basically you get to see with the exception of Johnny, um, both Sue and Ben are in the process of, of, of winning. Basically. Yeah. Or, or at least not losing. They've at least moved things to a next level of standstill by the time that it happens. So. so let's go through a very quick plot summary, and then we can talk about the spe specific things we like. In this yes. Issue. Yeah. Diablo is back, everyone. Mm -hmm. I, I, at this point, I've lost track of where Diablo should have been. Mm -hmm. I, I, I believe – no, I believe there's a reference to like Diablo should be dead. But yes. who knows what comic that happened in. But Diablo is back, and he is out to get the Fantastic Four by pitting them against, as you said, elemental analogs. And they are specifically targeted by the elements that they cannot defeat. Which works insofar as the Invisible Girl, the Thing, and Human Torch are fought to a standstill. Mm -hmm. Reed, being the amazing Unstoppable Reed Richards, defeats his analog and then goes to – I think he goes to uh, Johnny first. Yeah. It's not so yeah, much that he, he defeats him as much as he escapes him. He gets away. Yeah, which is a step ahead of what everyone else is in the process of doing. So He goes to Johnny and then to Sue – Mm -hmm. And Sue at this point has already teamed up with Ben. Oh, yeah. I suppose that's true. Sue, Sue like Reed, actually manages to get away from her analog uh, or her elemental as well to show up and help Ben. Well, the, the get away with is, is a bit – I feel that Sue is less successful than Reed. I think that Sue just manages to get her fights closer to Ben's mm -hmm. as opposed to I think that Reed actually does escape and is pursued. Uh, yeah, it's, hairs, it is splitting hairs. I think, I think it's, it's kind of, but nonetheless, I suppose my original point before I mucked it all up is, is really that, um, the, the return of, of 
completely omniscient Reed Richards, a, a character that I, I don't like, seeing him come back is tempered by the fact that all the other he's, characters... He's not the only cap- capable character. Exactly. Anymore. They're all capable to lesser or greater extents. And it's so funny because... How do I put this? You mentioned that this is the most Stanley-ish issue in, in forever. And I, I think I also want to talk about the Kirbyisms in here that I really appreciate. But yet, and this may be me overplaying my hand, there's a strong element of uh, John Byrne that is a Silver Age DC fan as well. And well, in, in the in the at least the first three issues of this run, mm-hmm. and are arguably the last one as well, mm-hmm. they are very because they're done in one, and because they're so plot heavy in a way that Marvel comics aren't normally. Yeah, I can totally see where you're coming from, and actually, these stories are very reminiscent of me to me of Burns' later Superman stories, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which feel in the same way very formulaic Silver Age DC. Exactly. It, this... it, in, in a good way. Yeah, I, no, I absolutely. As, as yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, to me, I think the, the, the way that I split the difference is this issue, because it's one of those deals where each person faces a mismatched analog of themselves, uh, uh, sorry, of the team, then they team up with someone else and split partners, and yet they're also relatively capable on their own, Um it reminds me a lot of uh, early Justice League of Americas, actually. It, you know, mm-hmm. just in that sense of, for for all their other strengths, faults, and weaknesses, um, Lee and Kirby, Kirby did the plotting, and Kirby's plotting was seat of the pants, you know? And Byrne has a little bit more discipline uh, in ways that serve him incredibly well, Uh and at certain times, I feel kind of can can undercut the book. But on the other hand, this issue's got a tremendous amount. There's actually some real science in here, too, that you would never catch Stanley knowing something about being able to change the air, you know, the pressure of air to make it a liquid. Or uh, I think there was another fun little science fact that that uh, that Reed busts out. You know, he refers at one point to you know his um, his improvised electrolysis or whatever to to separate the hydrogen and the oxygen. You know, mm-hmm. and of course, like that is far more than than Freewheel and Stan would I think be able to to cook up because you know. Stan was flying by the seat of his pants, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, also, Stan was also working off of Kirby or right. or whoever was drawing the issue's guide. Yes, and exactly. I, by by to the fact that he is writer and penciler, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. gets to do tricks like that. Yeah. You know, and, so, so that it's not a writer working against the artist or even just writer not understanding what the artist was trying to do. Right. So there's a unification here by having the writer and the artist doing the same thing. But again, part of what I think really works is that, that, and this may be one of my biases. I, of course, adored Burns' work uh, from way back in the days where he's doing Iron Fist with Claremont, you know, before he even comes to X-Men, before he gets to here. But even back then, I had like one of the stray issues of uh, Space 1999 that he did. And, oh, yeah. I remember those. Yeah. And Burns got, a, it, you know, 
like someone like Chris Claremont, he's he's kind of a science fiction wonk, but Byrne likes his science harder, and he actually pays attention. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's he's not he's... well well uh, at times. Ooh, when, when it when it serves the story, sure, which I think is the best way to do it. Of yes, course. yeah, you but know? you know there there are for example the the final issue in this six issue run that we're going to be talking about mm-hmm. has a very you know on the one hand sure it like it doesn't contradict science but it's also sort of goofy in the way that science fiction is when it's not when it's the focus is more on the fiction than the science if that makes sense yeah no exactly well or or very much like burns burns thing reads very much like the kind of uh pulp that last issue in particular reads like the kind of story that a sci- the science fiction pulps back in the fifties would have read. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's very, very. It's not just blind old space opera, but it's more of there's going to be a spattering of science to make it feel interesting and fun, um, and, and and ways to twist things. But it also at the same time is. Um, you know, it's it's not breaking any new ground, you know. But which is yeah. fine, which is great. I, I, I'd like to talk about not breaking any new grounds because one of the things I love about two thirty two is by going for the let's be honest superhero cliche of let's attack the team individually. Yeah, he gives each member of the team the chance to show off, and it works as a really nice introduction or reintroduction, I should say, to what everyone is capable of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, every member of the team in this story gets a chance to shine. Yes. And they, they get a moment. And if this was your first Fantastic Four comic, you would come away knowing what every character is capable of, but also their relationship to each other. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. It, it's... it's an amazingly good use of real estate. There, mm-hmm. There's a lot of information packed in here, but it doesn't feel like exposition. No, I, it it is one of those things of... Uh, Burn his just, you know, again, like I said, there's a lot of discipline here. This is this is a done in one, but this is not your traditional lazy done in one. Even even with a story that is as throwaway. Um Yeah, I mean, it's amazing throwaway. Diablo appears in the first two pages and the last page of the comic. Yeah. And the rest of it is basically and he basically exists to set up the monsters who mm-hmm. are intentionally throwaway. Right, like the monsters exist to threaten the team and be defeated. Yeah, and Diablo exists purely to set that up, and then at the end, go, I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you kids. Yeah, that's it. it. And Doctor Strange, <laughs> and Doctor Strange, who just what, which is actually something else I really like about these issues, where like they feel, uh, it feels part of the Marvel universe in a way that previous issues didn't. I yes. guess. Oh, completely, completely. You know? mm-hmm. Um, but no, it, and so it's it's. It's one of those things where, on the one hand, it's a very plot-heavy issue, mm-hmm. but there's so much character stuff folded into it. You're like, this is actually just a really good piece of writing. Yeah, no, it is. It is super, super strong. This, this, this is Burn is a guy, and I'm fascinated by the extent to which he he has a strong take on the characters. He has a strong take on what he wants to do. Um, you know, but. I, even even before the fact that he you know we're looking at a um, non-devolved Ben Grimm you know there's not the changes in costumes that happen later you still get something as as minor as 
Byrne clearly prefers having the thicker black collar around around everyone's yes. uniform. Yeah. You know, yeah. like he just he know he really knows what he wants to do here, and it's really amazingly enjoyable to read, uh, in no small part because, uh, just because I think especially following up on Mench and Sinkevich's run where you see. Either half the time, you know, a team that's attempting to do something new or the other half of the time trying to play the greatest hits and not really doing either. You yeah, know? exactly. It, it's it's telling in a way that this is called Back to the Basics. Yes, absolutely. Because it is. This is meat and potatoes Fantastic Four. But you haven't had that in a really long time. So it feels very fresh. Well, I I think it's not just that you haven't had it in a very long time. It's also you haven't had it at this caliber. Like we yeah, had. Exactly. It's done very well. Yeah. It, you know, and I think that one of the things that I find interesting and kind of, uh, again, great about these particular six issues is they're they're largely done in ones you know there's a there's a bit of a faint from 234 to 235 that's burn playing on another trope you know I, yeah exactly because and it is playing on another trope which is great yeah and he does like, he it, does it's mm -hmm. he does it really well but like something in 232 one of the things that i love is on that very second page with diablo is the panel in which he switches from his appearance of kindly old Mr. Oilbad to, you know, the meek little man back to Diablo being like vile woman is done in that classic uh, Kirby one panel. You know, that yeah. it, it's a bit of comic bookery, like super old style comic bookery that... Oh, but there's so much like wonderful old school about this. Yeah, Sue in the beauty parlor. Yes, exactly. Feels amazingly retro, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but in a in a way that doesn't also feel offensive. Do you know what I mean? Like I feel there's a way that you could just be like, of course she's in the beauty. She's getting her hair done. Typical right. woman. Right. But it's there's so there's something. Uh, I guess it's fun in a way that sort of gets it out of that because. Yeah. Sue is sassing her hairdresser. Yes, right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and yeah, I don't know. There's there's something that it's so throwback, but it doesn't feel offensively throwback. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Although yeah. I could do without the uh, and he does this in a later issue as well. Sue is always wearing her costume. She just keeps it invisible. You see, and this is the one where this first time I'm like, oh, that's really kind of fun and clever. There's a point where. Two, it's just two or three issues from now where it's the same thing and it's so awkward in part because Byrne has to explain it. The thing that's interesting about Byrne is his, his ability to be um, more fanboy than thou, you know, is in, in some ways it serves him in good stead up until the point where, you know, you start getting more and more, almost OCD-ish type ticks where he has Sue explain a mouthful of stuff when she, in that later thing where she's talking about it. And you're just like, oh, come on. Like, <laughs> literally, there, just, we, yeah, oh, come the, on. The fanboyer-than-thou thing really comes up for me. I think in the very next issue where you get Sue revisiting the, I have a special uh, light in my belt, which lets me into the, yeah. the Baxter building, where I was just like, there's no need 
Yeah. Like, oh, oh well, the, sort of there's no need. But again, there's kind of that weird, like, there's no need in in the way that you and I think of it. But in the way of the guys who used to write into the DC letters pages asking how Superman washes his clothes, you do. You know, like, again, there's a little bit of a redress in the those pages in as Sue meets a priest and takes him up in the elevator. There's like an entire I mean, an entire I mean, this is a great thing about about Byrne. He jams it into basically yeah, like a page made, of real yeah, estate broken across say, two pages, like, you know, yeah, but he, a long sequence. Yeah, it's not a long sequence, but it is also jam-packed to convey the fact that, like, yeah, people can't just walk into the get up to the Baxter building unannounced. And Reed has definitely taken precautions to avoid, you know, the sort of attacks that happen. Like, there's all but a mission statement from Byrne. And I don't know, I could be wrong, in the very next Baxter building, we might have the people break into the Baxter building and still read shit trope. Yeah. You know, no, no, you can no. tell get that, that I want to say you get that like one time during Burns run. Yeah. And because it is like the, so rare at this point mm-hmm. that, that you're, that it has impact. Yeah. But you're right. There, there is a certain level of, and throughout the entire issue, burn has burn knows what is wrong with the book. Yes. You know, Burn has also, you get the feeling, been reading the book and is disappointed with the same things that you are by this point. Yes. So you have, mm-hmm. you have that level of throwaway. Two other things I want to say about 232 very quickly. Yeah. Uh, firstly, it's worth pointing out that he brings Frankie Ray back. Oh, it's super important. Uh, and, and this will play into a subplot going across these six issues uh, with, I think, my favorite moment, which is maybe 235 but but we'll get there eventually right um but that also speaks to the idea that Byrne has been reading the book oh yes yeah. Fra- frankie frankie disappeared like yeah ha- literally had a subplot that was never resolved and disappeared yeah and and back years ago yeah um, yeah burn is basically back to resolve the subplot yeah there's a variety of things i love the fact that he brings frankie ray back i love the fact that frankie ray has uh, um, a wrap in her hair. So she literally looks kind of like um, a different color, you know, w- w- what the what the video gamers would call a different skin of Crystal, you know? Like, it's kind of like she's not Crystal, but he's clearly given this little shout-out with her hair, you know? Oh, that's fascinating, because I was going to say she looks like a recolored Gwen Stacy. Oh, that's interesting as well. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that too, especially with the length of the wrap and the hair and things. And um, and of course, she's got the the blonde hair mini skirt in that. Yeah. the blonde uh, blouse and mini skirt type thing going on. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a good call. Um, uh, and and thing number two is I am fascinated by and also feel that it's very important uh, the level of non-fantastic four non-villain characters that are in this book oh yeah so the thing is rescued by a woman in a sports store mm-hmm. uh you see sue's hairdresser and and you get the idea that like there are there are more people in the fantastic four's world than the fantastic four which has not been the case for the longest time yes that it's been the fantastic four or props for that story mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And and this is the first issue in a long time where you get the feeling that oh there's actually a world that they exist in. 
it's one of the things that I think is really interesting here because my secret um, idea of the the reason why these issues work is that burn isn't doing is that burn isn't trying to beat Lee and Kirby at their own game with Fantastic Four. He's actually trying to beat Chris Claremont at Chris Claremont's own game, you know? So the the fact that the character, like the hairdresser's got a name and, and has a little bit of business, the woman in the scuba store has a name and a bit of business. Um, but also I think it's worth pointing out that that of these six issues, you mentioned the, the Frankie Ray subplot. Frankie Ray is the only subplot across the first six issues. She's the only thing that's going on you know, uh, across everything. And it's not really the rest of the FF. Like, yes, it's, yes, Johnny Storm's involved with Frankie. And we see this issue with her. But as you know, there's a few issues where it's just her and just her subplot moving things. And the rest of the team more or less stays static, uh, which gives the book a, is is really daring in its way to be the fact that he's that burns like I'm going to start off my run on the Fantastic Four. No one's really there's only going to be one subplot and it's around a secondary character that's tied to Johnny. So it's sort of kind of a Johnny Storm subplot, but not really. And again, apart from the faint 234 and 235 most of these work is done in once. You know? Yeah, exactly. I, and, uh, let, okay, let's move on to 233 for the point I'm about to make. Yes. Which is... Which is even more daring in a way, too. Right? But, yeah. Mm -hmm. But as is 234, 233 and 234 are very interesting to me because they are very non-Fantastic Four stories. Mm -hmm. And both, in many ways, really remind me of Will Eisner's The Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking of the spirit in the next issue, interestingly enough. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the next issue in particular is is either a Kirby Fourth World story or a Will Eisner spirit story. And really, it's a mix of the two. But this story in, as well, in particular, Mission for a Dead Man is the name of this issue. And the plot is essentially someone joining you at high school, uh, uh, a bully, mm -hmm. uh, is... Uh, executed for a crime he says he did not commit and he asks the priest who was present at the execution to give a letter to johnny storm and the letter is essentially prove that i did not do this crime mm -hmm. that mechanism the idea that the hero of the story the protagonist of the story is trying to clear a dead man's name mm -hmm. is a very not fantastic for right but b is very spirit. Yeah. Well, you know, I think uh, 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 it's interesting that, that, yeah, there's, again, the, the done in oneness of it. There's also, in, this, in that issue, there's a great little um, bravura sequence that is very much like the spirit in that when Johnny's reading the crime about the crime that happened two years earlier, you get six panels of flashback that are done in black and white and wordless. And it's just a, it's, it's just a great sequence. Like it's one of those classic things of it's sort of an effective bit of storytelling. And then later when you jump back to see the resolution of the mystery, it goes back to black and white, but you've got the torches captions like guiding us through what happened. Uh, 
it's again like Eisner's stuff. It's a lovely bit of just like, hey, this is this is something that you can do with comics. You know, you can drop the color out for like six panels for a flashback. You know, you can drop the sound out and you can sort of recreate the effects that film can do. But in doing so, you actually just show how um, how unlike movies they are and how much yeah, actually exactly. like comics yeah. they are, you know? Yes. You, you, by by doing theoretically aping the idea that you do a flashback in black and white, mm-hmm. uh, you show that it's a comic. Like you demonstrate the comicsness of the story yeah. even more. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You you really get to see it as a, a little bit of graphic oomph. So there's so many things. Again, you've got you've got a guy who's coming in, and and who knows? It this could be one of those classic like oh it, you know we'll find out later that you know one of our very much on the ball uh, listeners will throw out in the comments thread what they happen to know that Byrne had done this as like a drawer story or whatever that he revised, but. Assuming that that's not the case, you've got a guy who's stepping in on the Fantastic Four, and not only does he do a done-in-one issue in the first one, the second one, again, looks like a fill-in issue. Everything about this looks like a drawer inventory, out-of-continuity issue that, quote-unquote, doesn't count. And yet, it's clear that Byrne is kind of making his little point that like no they all count you know and and also there's a variety of things that he wants to prove here like it's very important to him there's a little speech that reed says in a later issue about the importance of the fantastic four and who they are in a world with other superheroes one of the things that i appreciate in this issue is is that uh, as opposed to that kind of the the Mention Sienkiewicz again. Mench puts forward an idea that is that is very popular. That I guess also Wolfman did the idea that the FF are a family, and that's what distinguishes them. And what I find interesting is the idea that Byrne is like, well, yeah, sure, but that's not really it. What makes the FF interesting to Byrne is that they are members of a community. And that community, there's the community of the family, but there's also the community of the world around them. Yes. And and they are decent, good citizens, essentially. So Johnny Storm is the is a guy who, even though we've seen him teasing Ben to the point of callow cruelty, when he's handed a letter by someone who used to bully him, who's like, hey, help me out, like... Johnny really doesn't think twice about it. Like Exactly. He, he just is like, well, I have to do this. Yeah. I mean... Just because this is the right thing to do. Yeah, exactly. All, so much so to the point where Byrne undermines his own little dramatic punch, which is fascinating. Because at the end of the... The dramatic punch of the very end? Yes. Yeah, the yeah. very end, you know, Johnny's does all this stuff. Finally, the last page is him explaining what happened to the executed criminal's mother and and you it's only at the end where he's like and that's why he wanted to let you know that he was innocent for this crime and she's like yeah but he was a little turd and johnny's like what you knew that and she's like yes i knew it and basically basically she was kind of like you know 
Johnny apologizes and says, I wanted you to believe that Georgie wasn't a Bert. I mean, I went through digging through old records so that you could think that he was. And she's like, that's because you're the kind of boy who any mother could get proud, could get proud because you are a hero. And that underlining of like, Johnny is a hero. But the fact is, at no point is he really thinking of this guy's mother. He's just doing this because it's the right thing to do. And the fact that he doesn't even... He's not even really self-righteous about it. Is kind of this very important thing of, again, sort of the the well-of-course nature of heroism that, again, I feel ties burn a little bit more into the Silver Age DC stuff in a way. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. Two other things that are, that are particularly fascinating to me about this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the previous issue... Byrne reintroduced the idea that the Fantastic Four exists outside of the Baxter building. Mm-hmm. This is something that Lee and Kirby did a lot. That you'd see them basically in the real world. That mm-hmm. you'd see them interact with other people. Uh, this issue, he reintroduces Johnny and Ben fighting. Yes. The, the Johnny and Ben rivalry. But amps it up to such a degree that the other characters apologize essentially for Johnny and Ben. Mm-hmm. And that kind of fascinates me. It kind well, of fascinates me that he brings back the cliche and then almost immediately does away with it, almost. Well, he's... I think... I think I don't know if it's one of those areas where where Byrne is trying to feel out what he wants, if that's something that hasn't gelled. Because, because yes, on the one hand, he's bringing back the feuding... On the other hand, he really wants to introduce the element of danger for it. Like, literally, there's a point where Johnny could have been killed if Reed hadn't interfered. And in fact, Ben walks off and essentially Reed and Sue turn to the priest and are like, hey, we've got to leave. Uh, if we don't keep an eye on him, he, he might hurt someone, which is kind of a far more it is a is a callback to very early Ben Grimm that that I think Byrne realizes kind of quickly doesn't quite work because we don't really see anything like that again with Ben um it, I think I think eventually Byrne figures out what he wants to do uh with Ben um which is which is again bring him back visually and then do different things mm. with that. But he's still trying to, He's he, he kind of knows what he wants, but he's not quite hitting it. The one thing I want to mention about the issue uh, that I thought was funny and and interesting is that after Johnny goes through this whole thing of trying to follow the murderer back to essentially a superpowered confrontation with Hammerhead, Hammerhead disappears the police show up and are like, hey, you did a good good job. And Johnny's like, yeah, well, great. I screwed this up. And the police guy's like, hey, wait a minute. Like, Daredevil just turned in all the Kingpin secret records. Seems Kingpin was keeping complete dossiers on everyone in the mobs. Maybe that will have something interesting of interest to you. And so basically the entire thing really does end up getting resolved. You know, Johnny does the right thing. But it's interesting that Burns kind of like, oh, yeah, but he doesn't solve the murder. What solves the murder is what's going on elsewhere in the Marvel Universe, which, again, is this kind of like you said, there's a, the connection to the Marvel Universe with Doctor Strange 
or even in there is kind of this weird like burns like no it's really important the ff take place in the same universe as everyone else and i'm i'm going to underline it where even in this old dunnan one like the only reason why johnny solves this is because of what's happening over in daredevil by my friend frank miller go check it out okay playing off that mm-hmm. it's funny you read it as that because i also read it as oh this this is the MacGuffin and i have no interest in this like oh. i don't i don't actually really care what the murder was like i i sure like the, the we have files yeah, you know what I mean? Like, it, right. it, it, I, I I get what you're saying, and I think it's true that it does play into the idea of the Fantastic Four exists in the Marvel universe. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it is theoretically the answer to what Johnny is looking for, and it's served up at the last panel of the second last page, yes, made it feel incredibly tossed off to me. Well, well, which it which it very well could be. I think to me, Byrne is more interested in taking knowing what the cliches are and knowing and and at least knowing that it's important to do them differently and so Mm -hmm. i think that rather than having uh johnny like have a perfect slam dunk where he defeats hammerhead and somebody confesses you know and he manages to i don't know get it on tape or whatever you know the way that you would have in like say bill mantlow doing one doing an issue a done in one issue of ff um Burns like, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not doing it that way. I'm gonna like snatch. Uh, I I'm not going to give the clean victory, but I'm not going to have Johnny lose either. So, I don't know. It, I could see. I I think you're. You make a good point, but part of me is also like, um, yeah. I I, I feel a little bit differently about it, but eh, you know, it's still it's still. A su- not just a surprisingly good done in one, but it's again, Byrne puts like just a shit ton of effort into it, which yes. I think is kind of his point. You know, he's kind of mm-hmm. like, yeah, these things, it, it, they, they're not, they don't have to be just a disposable story. You can still yeah, show things I, about your characters with them, you know? And well, he really does show things about his character because this treats Johnny seriously. Yeah. Which, let's be honest doesn't happen in this book much yeah yeah not much anymore two issues into it and all of a sudden we have johnny uh, johnny being capable but also johnny being moral yeah yeah you know and mm -hmm. and that i think that's that's really rare but also speaks to the clear affection that burn has for these characters Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah no uh yeah he's uh, affection and then and Again, sort of in that kind of, I think as time goes on, Byrne gets a little more willing to openly preach to the audience and telegraph what he's trying to say. But in this one, he's just like, I'm just going to show it and I'm going to show it. And by showing it, it's I'm showing you that it's important. And uh, yeah. it's really it, it ends up being like, yeah, that's. It, it it has it, it it convinces precisely because it it leaves a lot of that to us. So yeah, yeah. Two thirty four. The man with the power, which opens up with the most Will Eisner narration that has appeared <laughs> in a comic that Will Eisner did not write. That is Shakespeare true. wrote. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Then there are those who live their lives in obscurity, unaware of the greatness they harbor within. 
this is the story of such a man. He is L.R. Skip Collins, and he be, may be the most powerful man who ever lived. That's fucking Eisner. Yeah, I mean, that is so right. Eisner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. The, 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 this is the story of such a man. I didn't realize it <coughs> until you said it, Graham, but it, it's so dead on. That, that feels cribbed right out of, you know, Gerard Schnabel or something like that. You know? Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, it's amazing. Uh, the, the plot of this, the plot of this issue is great because, as you said, it's a faint. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's a faint in a great way mm-hmm. because, Sure, it is the story of Skip Collins, who is a man who, much like, and this is where my Kirby influence came from, and for me, he's billion dollar Bates. Mm, that's really from, funny. From Forever People. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God, I totally uh, who, forgot. Yeah. Who, who, again, is a man who doesn't realize what he can do. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, he knows he has power, but he doesn't realize exactly what the power is. Mm-hmm. And Skip doesn't even realize he has the power. Right. Uh, so Skip has Skip has the power to basically alter reality as he wants, but he literally doesn't realize he's doing it. And through various uh, events, he goes to New York for his job. He's yeah. I, I should say that he's played as a very mundane man who never goes anywhere. He goes to New York for his job. It's very thrilling for him. He runs into the Fantastic Four, and various disasters are happening around New York that he is present for. Fantastic Four deal with the disasters to the best extent, but the disasters are very intense. I mean, the, lots of people die. New York is basically destroyed. Yeah. And as the Fantastic Four go off to deal, uh, go off into space to deal with what is causing these disasters, Skip accidentally undoes everything. You know, I I want to say that there's. Uh, the the one thing that that is just more I know it's more difference of focus uh, Graham but I think the 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 faint for me that I found really interesting is this idea of Skip Collins is established of, of as having this power of more or less whatever he wants happens and through a strange series of encounters as he moves more and more out of his comfort zone of living the same life over and over again, more and more disastrous things happen. Like he ends up tailing Mr. Fantastic and the invisible girl when a building starts to fall apart. And then it looks like the entire city is falling apart. And you see a thing from Skip saying, Oh my, I was hoping to see the Fantastic Four in action, but this is more than I had in mind. And so part of the feint is the idea that, that, I read this and I'm like, oh, the, the, so the skip, skip is causing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And one of the things that's great is in the end you find out that he's actually not. That life is yeah. rolling on larger than him. He just ends up saving everyone without actually knowing it. Um, I, which, and so we should get to the second part of the feint, which is not only is he not causing it, the issue ends up with what is causing all the disasters. Is ego the living planet is coming to Earth? Right. Well, and and part of the reason why I think this is important as a faint is is that again the trope of the Earth is hit with catastrophes for an entire issue, and the FF are like it's a signal up in space. Everyone, it's it's we've seen this happen with Galactus at least two or three times already, and in fact they start they're like. Galactus, 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 
And well, I, but the issue is also a Galactus riff. It's a Silver yes. Surfer. No, it, exactly. It's the riff on the Silver Surfer. But so when you get to the page, you know, the third to last page or the second to last page, I'm always bad at counting backwards. Uh, Sue's like, could Galactus be returning? And Reed's like, I don't think so. Galactus would have no reason to probe the Earth. But then as everything ramps up and up and up, it's like, yeah, it's not Galactus. It's Ego more or less in search of Galactus to kick his ass um, is, is wonderful. I mean, it's wonderful. Can I, can I annoy you with meta text here? Yes, Graham? Please, please do this, this. We've been gushing too much. Let's get into meta text. Well, I don't think that you're going to find this bit of meta text as odious as the stuff that I've got up my sleeve for a, a few issues from now. <laughs> Where I think you're going to be like, what? No. But this one is Skip's powers are weirdly. It's that classic. You can cue up the I can. I think you're reading too much into the story, Jeff. I can see what you're saying, but I don't think Burton intended it to be there. Skip Collins is is essentially a comic book reader. You know, his power which is more or less to skip over the stuff that he doesn't like so that he can keep having the experience that he does like over and over and over again for dozens of years uh and that he's essentially he's he's essentially a small fry because he's made his life small you know that's something that burns says quite textually but whether or not we're supposed to read like you said He's he's an Eisner character, which I, I didn't catch. But on top of it, he is he is an aging fanboy. You know, he likes his life to be exactly the same. When he goes to the Fantastic Four, he wants to see them do all the same things that they normally do. And then when it gets a little out of hand, he basically is like, I wasn't counting on this. And then he is the guy who more or less hits the big reset button and rechanges the world um and then and then he's kind of like oh geez uh oh, well i just you know kind of like wanders off with his power spent after essentially doing the the one thing that that he's supposed to be here to do you know uh, i'm going to i thought you were going somewhere else with that i thought that skip was a stand-in for a comic book creator interesting which I think also plays into some of my obsessions with Burn, but tell me more. Do you have an idea as to who or? No, no, not a specific comic book creator, a generic comic book creator Mm -hmm. who has the power to do whatever they want. Yes. But it's also, especially in something like the Marvel Universe, victim of events elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, And so they both, they have powers that they don't quite realize because the things they do impact others. Mm-hmm. But also, their power is limited. They don't have the ultimate power that it would appear to that they do. Right, right. Yeah, that could be because that—that's a really good point. Because what Skip can do is he can destroy or or undestroy things, but he can't really change the nature of who people are. You know, he doesn't. He's not able to. He can't influence his son who, let's face it, his son is, like, terrifying. Like, the son on page three, who basically looks like a, a, a 
drugged out biker reading playboys at the kitchen table. <laughs> His son is astounding, isn't he? Yeah, it really is. I'm just like, your son is really Manson? You know. like, fuck you. I'm reading playboy at the table. Yeah. But it, it's fascinating the extent to which Byrne is, if he, if he is making those criticisms, they are in a way both, perhaps, perhaps they're not, um, it's not, again, it's not the later sort of excoriatory moralizing, you know? It's actually kind of a fun point for Byrne, you know? The character it's, it's... is harmless, he's fun, he does have his place, he does sort of save things and reset things, um, and Byrne himself has got to be aware of what he's doing. It, it may well be that it's possible that Byrne is very blinkered uh, in the sense that one of the things that Byrne is trying has been, we've seen him do in these two or three issues is try and bring the stories and the approach to story to com superheroes that he likes into the modern age. And Skip is very much a guy who at every level is tied to a past, you know, that he, mm -hmm. he is no longer in step with the rest of reality in part because he has the ability to reset it to whatever he's most comfortable with. Yeah. yeah. But, but again, he, he doesn't, he doesn't because he doesn't know he's doing it. Like that's, that's the most interesting part about skip to me that he, he simultaneously manages to make life better for his wife, but is powerless to control his children like mm -hmm. that there's something i don't know the, the interlude with the son is weirdly fascinating to me yeah because burn calls out the fact that for all his power he can't do anything to his son yes yeah like that's called out in the narration yes perhaps because he does not wish to exert too strong a control over his children or perhaps it is that even the greatest power must have limits that's such an odd thing well, but then, then here's the next one, which again, to me, is kind of the comic book, you know, fanboy critique. It is a question Skip Collins is unlikely to ponder. Skip is a man who avoids such questions, a man who craves only total anonymity. Skip Collins does not like to stand out in a crowd. And then in the next panel, it's like blithely unaware that he is the engineer of his own fate. So he's, Byrne is very, and on the next page, when Skip basically finds himself thinking that if only I'd left a half hour earlier, I'd have missed it. It becomes a half hour earlier simply by virtue of the fact that Skip desires it so. He is simply relieved that he will not, after all, be late for work. So, in other words, Skip is not paying attention. Like, he, Skip doesn't get it, but it the... The idea that Skip is knowingly unknowing, I suppose, felt to me like a very strong subtext to um, the story. And I could, I could be wrong, but it, the idea that Skip is keeping his, himself blinkered or blinded, he knows at some level that he has the power, but he doesn't know. He would know if he was paying attention, but if he did, that would mean that he would have responsibility and then... So it's very important that he not. But I don't know. Maybe that's too much of my mm -hmm. college existentialism class. Uh, <laughs> but if through. ever a comic creator was going to bring in 
uh, college existentialism classes into superhero comics. I think Burn of the 80s would be the one to do it. Yeah, he's definitely up there. He's definitely up there. Because, like I said, he's got a... This guy's got a lot to prove, you know? Um, And and my yeah. And he he does it. Like mm-hmm. these are six really good issues. We should also point out that uh, three issues in Johnny's romance with Frankie is entirely rekindled. And also Ben reveals that he never gets drunk because he doesn't trust himself with his own strength. Oh, I missed that. Which that's again like... speaks. Yeah, that's right. To the, mm-hmm. Is Ben a monster thing? Which you're right does kind of get dropped very quickly like it gets hinted at there's a lot of nods to it mm-hmm. but it never really gets addressed and also never goes anywhere yeah because i like I said i could be wrong but knowing at least the vague contours of what happens with ben coming up john's burns got he's like i i i, I know where i want to get but unlike that first issue where he's like, I do it. He's like, it's not it's not right. He knows he's got to take another approach. Interestingly enough, I also feel that um, one of the things that comes out in this issue and and also in next issue is, is that Byrne, I feel very strongly, it, it's he was aware how important it was that John, that Joe Sinnott is not part of the book. The, the Senate, it represents a specific type of appearance for the FF that that changes and flattens and distorts your expectations. And so Burns like, ah, I don't want to do that. But at least for me, as we move into issue 235, Four Against Ego, is, is that Burn can't really draw a Senate level thing as well as he would like, you know, his, it, maybe it's just me, but his thing looks a little more off model than I would have thought, you know? Oh, yeah, his thing looks very off model. I think all the characters look off model. Sue in particular, fascinating enough, looks like she comes from a different era of burn than the rest of the book. Mm. Sue feels like she comes from a, like pre uncanny X-Men burn. Weirdly enough. Huh. Uh, and I, I don't know why, uh-huh. but yeah, there's something about Sue that is very, very strange. Uh, visually, I mean, okay, so let's talk about this because we referenced that, you know, this is actually a very Stan Lee-esque writing. But something that I think is 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 the case and is very obvious in 235 because 235 opens with a Fantastic Four 4 riff mm-hmm. with, with Ben crawling inside Ego. With yeah. large machinery strapped to his back, just as in Fantastic Four 4, mm-hmm. Ben climbs into the whale with a bomb attached to him. This is a very visually non-Kirby run. Mm. Do, I mean, do you get Kirby in here? Because I just don't. You know, it, it, it neither finish nor page layout. And it's kind of surprising to me, the lack of Kirby in these issues. You know, it's interesting that you say that, because... I again I feel like there's a number of things that what I think works really well for Burn is is that he wants to do these these riffs like he's very much I I don't know how to describe it it's the flip side of the cover band approach that we've seen up to this point it, up to this point we've seen people who are kind of like Okay, we want to do Lee and Kirby 
like we we want to have those riffs you know and burn is very much in this realm of like i want to do i want to i want to make it feel like how lee and kirby's stuff felt without necessarily making it read like a lee kirby comic you know and so he's burn is like well i'm going to do the things that that i do which is you know you've mentioned the man with the power is if it's an Eisner story, it's a it's a story that is so completely unlike Eisner. Like the amount of detail in the sense of the amount of detail that you get just on the splash page of Oh of sure, yeah. If, it, bed, if that, that was an know? Eisner story, it would be a soul figure surrounded by black. Yeah. At the edge of a bed, maybe yeah. you'd have the sock. But the fact that yeah. Byrne, who's actually writing and drawing an entire issue and inking it makes it a point to underline the type of art on on skip collins's wall or the amount of mess that's necessary to really make the place look messy is like he just he's like i i you know i'm making this stuff look contemporary i felt that way in the you know the back to the basics issue where Diablo is in a flop house, which is straight out of sort of Lee Kirby, you know, FF pre issue 10. And yet, and yet the amount of squalor that burn puts into the surroundings, the amount of detail that he puts into it is, is very different from the sort of detail that you see Kirby uh, put into things. It's, it's one of the things that's actually sort of, again, burns like I, I know what people expect. I know what people want. I want to do something. I, I want to evoke that stuff, but I also, it's really important to me that I do it differently. And part of it may also be like, let's face it. John Byrne is a big deal by this point. Like not as writer artist, John Byrne, but John Byrne's, you know, coming off Uncanny X-Men where he's screamingly popular, has a style that he has to maintain. And so it's interesting to me the way in which Four Against Ego in places has to look more like John Byrne and Terry Austin, you know, so that he's giving the fans what they want than trying mm -hmm. to do just flat out Kirby riffs. I, I'm also fascinated the extent to which, again... As more or less a done in one that is very silver agey, like a twist on Fantastic Voyage, um, that Burn jams so much into the issue that the big, big moments that you would think would be in a story about essentially Ego, the Living Planet, and all the stuff that happens in the course of this one issue, Burn does not waste a lot of real estate you know oh, no this this would be under wolfman a four issue arc absolutely absolutely you know and you can even tell the bits that wolfman and whoever would have been drawing it at that point yeah would have emphasized yes you completely. know you get the fantastic four while standing on ego get confronted by a giant ego yeah you know a giant ego body who attacks them by throwing mountains at them. Yeah. And this happens in three panels of a five-panel page. Isn't that insane? Like, that's just insane. Because uh, 
Because the thing is, is we're used to when you see that, that sometimes happens in some of the stories where where essentially there's too much material like people the writer is jamming in too much material for the artist but here burn being writer and artist is like it's super important to me that i'm not like i really don't want this to be a multi-part saga but i want to have all the wonder of it so i'm just going to keep packing it full of crazy shit but i'm not really going to give you a lot of time to emphasize on it like it's very it's very counterintuitive it's the sort of thing that i would bitch about and honestly in a way there's part of me that is like kind of bummed that you really don't get to see like if kirby was telling this story this is the way that the jack kirby you know of i don't know pre-issue 40 jack kirby would tell it you know this isn't the way that the kirby of the 60s you know mid 60s mid 70s issues of the ff would tell it kirby himself would make this like a three issue story just so that he can get those double page spreads in there but burn is like no i'm going to shrink this all down i'm going to make it ultra compact and I'm just going to keep throwing enough crazy shit on it. The fact that the FF confront a pseudo brain, you know, that is just, and that's just something that's tossed off is, is kind of. Yeah, exactly. I did the pseudo brain, which lasts less than a page. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This, it really is the sort of stuff that, um, Honestly, John Burns writing the type of com writing and drawing the type of comics that Grant Morrison is always talking about, like fondly. You know what I mean? The idea of like lots of crazy shit just jammed into page after page and keeping things moving as quickly as possible. You know? Well, and again, this the the uh, the Uber plot of this issue, mm -hmm. or or not necessarily the Uber plot, the the um, the point of this issue. Mm -hmm. is repeating something that we saw in an earlier issue in, in, I think it was a Mantlo issue, which is the FF have a mission and one by one they fall away. Yes. Yeah. Except this time it's the thing that is the last one. But, uh, and it's still an incredibly good, like, it's still an incredibly good idea. And it's still frustratingly quickly executed. Well, like, part of me is still like, I wish we could have seen more of this. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I would have as well. Except the thing that's great is Burn... I mean, it's just... The thing... This issue is plotted like a motherfucker. The fact that, that Burn opens up with his Kirby FF4 riff on the first page really made me laugh. You know? In a good way. In a totally appreciative, like... Wait, Most it's, other it's people, bold. yes, it's so bold. It's he's also like, okay, I'm getting this out of the way. I'm putting it on the splash page because I've always wanted to do this, but I'm going to make it the very first fucking thing, and I'm using it as the story hook because of where we ended up with last issue. You're like, wait, what the fuck just happened? Did I miss something? Or if you're picking this issue up cold, you're also like the thing's narration about how he's like, I I'm the only one who's left. You know, I'm the only one who can do it. The others are gone. There's only me left. It's a solid fucking hook from right there. And 
I just want to say, like, I really think this issue is plotted like a son of a bitch, you know, not like, oh, yeah, it's pretty good for like a comic book artist. I mean, it's just it's all of the choices are really smart and they're in the service of just sort of making you turn the next page. The fact that so much of the story is done in media res before you before you get to the point you know, the exact crucial point in the story that you want, where you understand why Ben's on his own, and then you just move the story right on from there, and it's right near the end. It's it's really fucking strong. Like, Byrne is not indulgent um, at all. Like, the one little bit of indulgence that he does, he's like, I'm doing it right on page one, guys. I did it, I got it, I'm digging it, and now, you know... We're going on from there. And so by the end, where you literally have the disintegration of Ego the planet, like, falling apart in the sun and, like, Ben being, like, ripped out from the heart of the planet to fall into space, that itself, again, is, like, maybe a six-panel sequence broken across two pages. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I gotta it, say, it, it's, it's really it's so satisfying. Yeah, Burn is... It's like this is prime burn. Mm -hmm. These are great, great issues. You can see why he got the reputation he got in these issues. Yeah, completely. because he is just in control of the whole fucking thing. Yeah. Well, and I think the thing that is like this is something that we are starting to see at Marvel here with him here and Miller at Daredevil, and then when Simonson comes on to Thor you know, a, a few years from now, you're seeing writer artists that you're not seeing in that sort of um, half-assed Jim Steranko way. Like, I love Steranko, but when you read his stories, like, there's not really anything there. He's, he's or like the stuff where you, um, I'm a huge fan of uh, Rich Buckler's Deathlock, which he is visually plotting, and then Doug Mensch is like, you know, essentially having to explain why the story is running itself in circles into the ground over the course of like 10 issues, you know, mm -hmm. burn mm -hmm. is, is like, I'm doing, I am creating comics that are good comics. Like this is, he is, he's single handedly, um, battling against the reputation that the image artists are going to go on and create you know, recreate like a decade later, you know, um, he, he is, he is committed to absolutely being like, I'm going to tell stories again, that are just as good as anyone or any other person. And maybe people can stop fucking calling it Chris Claremont's uncanny X-Men and realize that I was doing more than just drawing for fuck's sake. Yeah. You yeah, know? I, that, that, that I was there too. I was there too. I know you guys all think that I, I was doing more than just drawing Jean Grey in a bustier. God damn it. I was plotting these fucking stories. Arr! So, uh, issue 236. Are we ready to talk about issue 236? Are we? Are, is anyone ready to talk about issue 236? Uh, I, I suspect this is going to be an interesting one to talk about. Interesting. Uh, issue 236 is the 
the 20th anniversary of the fabulous Fantastic Four, as it says, uh, including on the cover an all-new FF blockbuster by Stan Lee and Jack King Kirby. No. Oh, I no, adore no, that not. fucking thing. I cannot wait to talk about that, even if it's just super briefly. It's not germane. Actually, uh, let's talk about it briefly before we get to Terror in a Tiny Town. Okay, so yeah, so the, the, the brand new old blockbuster <laughs> by Lee and Kirby is literally... <laughs> Kirby's storyboards for an episode of the 1970s cartoon. Yes. Inked by, like, a different person every single fucking page. Yeah. Uh, and they pretend that it's an all-star, like, special guest inker, as opposed to, we decided to add this at the last fucking minute. Yeah. Uh, and scripted by Stan Lee. And it's terrible! It is so terrible, it is awesome. I have to say, there is no, something... No, it's just terrible. Oh my god, Graham. I so disagree, because... It is a retelling of FF number five with Herbie the robot. Yeah, instead of the Human Torch. And the changes to it, like, I don't, I, I just, I don't know how I can convey how completely fucking batshit this it is. Because, I mean, admittedly, the context is not what they claim that it is. You know, I mean, it is. It's storyboard. It's Kirby's fucking storyboards, you know? being inked by other people and then it's it's lee like just doing crazy bullshit riffs like he's whatever makes it work for him and i kind of dig that like i don't know if you remember when um uh what well i know you remember but what were those goddamn events where like stanley came back and had all the backup issues in Uh oh there was comics. uh, uh, I, I don't know about the back issues, but there was um, there was like Stanley meets the the thing, and Stanley meets Doctor Strange. And, yes, and there's all those where it, like it's basically Stanley riffing. Yeah, or and, for the entire story. Yeah, yeah, and this this is kind of a riff. There's so much here that is like like Kirby sort of treats this as like storyboards you know for a a job that he's very grateful to have but like doesn't really necessarily need and but lee is just is just he's so fucking irreverent to his own work in here like the stuff that is going on like i just don't i don't it's hard to him it's it's wonderful to imagine in another universe a a series where uh, two creators who create this like sort of milestone team come back and essentially do a ginormous piss take like so because you have herbie the fucking robot dress up as a pirate like they're going undercover as pirates like herbie doesn't even touch the ground and the pirates don't even notice they're like oh this little one's too puny to be good for much and of course not only is herbie like offended but but it's just like he's fucking flying. Like, you know, come on, pirates. He has no legs. <laughs> it's awesome how like absolutely insane this is. It's just insane gibberish. And the idea that the two creators who created the book come back and you put something together with a straight face that is is such a lunatic. I mean, it's such a desecration well, okay. of a grave that it's... But let's talk about the, the two creators coming back because they're nods, Jeff. Oh, yeah. Like, 
they use the Kirby uh, breakdowns, the, the Kirby uh, layouts, without his knowledge, never mind permission. Well, supposedly they said they got his permission. That's part of why uh, – because on the, on the anniversary letters page, they may be lying. It yeah. wouldn't surprise No, they me. are lying. Like, there, there were later interviews where I, I think not just Kirby but other people admitted that this oh. was basically – I was afraid that that was the case. I was like, I'm having a fun time with this. But if they're like, part of me was like, but is Kirby really giving them permission for this? Oh, I guess so. He's but I'm like, clearly not. <laughs> if you're, no, think about it. If you are Jack Kirby at this point, which is what, 1981, I guess, uh, you've pretty much fallen out with Marvel. Uh, why would you. For the also, second time. That, but also. You're still making comics. Yes. Why would you say, yes, use my uh, storyboards for a cartoon from four years ago? Honestly, I just assumed they were going to pay him the page rate. Like, he's like, okay, if I get the page rate for doing the things. I'm sure, like you said, if there's interviews, then it's totally fine. But for myself, like I said, I'm sort of like, it's so sacrilegious. It's so cynical. And it's just so um, stupid that it's really hilarious. And I sort of found it a really enjoyable bracing tonic after Terror in a Tiny Town because whatever else that Byrne is doing, and I I think he's, for the most part, doing it really well, uh, it's it's not not a piss take. You know what I mean? It's not silly at all, you know? Um, Okay, so, so let's talk about Terror in a Tiny Town then. Yes. Uh, actually, before we talk about Terror in Tiny Town, can we talk about the cover? Because you know the story about the cover, right? Uh, no, I do not. That Okay, so look at the cover of 236. Yes. And look under the R of the logo. Who is under the R? Yes, Stanley, but not Kirby. Because where is Kirby? Is he in the whited out space next to him? Yep. Oh, those fuckers marvel whited out kirby i was wondering if that was the case that is just the fucking yep. worst yep because okay. marvel at that point was the worst yeah i sort of thought that that was the case because believe me i noticed and bristled that it was only kirby uh only lee and i'm like well but also there's the big white space that's doing well sure like but... any other part on that cover yeah. yeah 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 well yeah okay fair enough I mean, there's there's some weird white spacing throughout that almost makes it look like, eh, you know. I mean, it's such a weird collection of heroes. I was like, is Byrne just committed to drawing every Marvel hero that he's drawn before? Like, because I'm like... I actually, f- I actually thought that. I wondered if that was it. Yeah, because seriously, when you're looking at the 20th anniversary of the fabulous Fantastic Four, you're going to be like, what the fuck is Ghost Rider doing there? That makes no sense whatsoever, unless you're like, you know that Byrne drew, you know, some issues of like, I'm like, where are the rest of the champions? Are the champions in here? You know, it's ridiculous. Maybe they're under the, the UPC box. <laughs> but <laughs> well, the, the funny thing is like, it's it's clearly, a, it's that or it's a, Here's the current superstars of Marvel because as a, you know, oh my God, it's everyone's come out to celebrate the Fantastic Four. You're like, where's the Inhumans? Where's the Black Panther? Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. It's clearly not yeah. that. It's Actually, clearly Black Panther not is that. there. What am I saying? Black right. Panther is visible. Right. Black Panther's there. Submariner's there. Daredevil's there. But like you do start getting into those moments of like, 
what the fuck is why is Hulk why are the defenders there why is Shang Chi the master of kung fu there you know like there's just like I could see a lot of people who got the invitation to show up for the Fantastic Four's like heroic flyby Shang Chi would not be one of them you know it's a little it's a little odd it's a little suspicion making. I should say. But also, let's talk about the fact that this cover also has the first appearance of She-Hulk in the Fantastic Four. Oh, very nice. Look at you. Look at you. Yep. Let's really move on to Terror in the Tiny Town, though. Yes, let's. Uh, Terror in the Tiny Town is uh, actually a pretty great anniversary celebration. It's a great issue. I won't annoy you. The The annoying meta text is coming, but just ignoring that for now, it's great. I it really is, dug this issue. It is the a variation on what has now become a genre trope, which is it's all your superpowered characters, but they don't have their powers, and reality slightly weird. Yeah, what's the mystery? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's done really well. Yeah, uh, in, in part because the reality they're all in uh, the Fantastic Four are all in this basically tiny town, which. There's terror in everyone, um, <laughs> but they're they're in pretty good lives. Mm-hmm. You know, Ben is is married to Alicia, yeah, and, and Reed is married to Sue, and Reed is a professor. Um, but they keep dreaming of hints of their other lives. Yeah, not even their their other lives. That no one actually has it directly until midway through the story. Yeah. Um, but it's it's all it's done really well, and there's some really nice moments in there. Uh, Sue's dream midway through, where Ben turns into the thing for the first time, yes. and on a panel basis, he visually moves through Kirby's different uh, depictions of the thing. Mm-hmm. Is great. Mm-hmm. I, I I love that that he the burn he even has the inking. That you have like yeah. the George Russo's inks over mm-hmm. Kirby, and then it moves on to the really early Senate over Kirby, mm-hmm. and then it moves on to the later Senate, and then it moves on to the burned thing. Mm-hmm. I I really like that. Yeah, but it's just it's just a really well done story. Sorry, I I was just going to say I, again one of the things I appreciate is that Burn is a he's doing he keeps things moving and he's also like he moves he's moves very confidently from his twist to his twist so you start off with a retelling of the ff's origin and you're like oh okay this is how we're going to restart it it's an anniversary issue he's got you all set up and then he has johnny wake up from the dream that's page three like most other people are going to milk this more but by page four we get the oh Johnny is in a reality where they don't have their powers and they're happy. And who's behind this? Like you see the puppet master grinning at the bottom of page five and you're like, yeah, Oh, okay. He's literally that early. He's like, yeah, it's, it's the puppet master. Everyone. Yeah. Except it's also, then it's not. And yeah, you know, which is a lovely twist. And also I love that you have the twist right there in, in plain view yeah. when you see Vincent Vaughn. Yeah. I do love, I love the fact that just just as uh, the uh, Conway uh, era FF gave us MC Hammer, um, you know, decades before he showed up, here's Vince Vaughn as an evil villain, 
And it'll be really hard not to imagine Vince Vaughn as Doctor Doom the next time they reboot the Fantastic Four. Because, let's face it, Vince Vaughn Doom is... I, it's it's got to happen now. It's got to happen. But yeah, I love that he hides <laughs> I, I, in plain sight. Someone has said it. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's great yeah. because you you see like you see him, and not only that, not only do they introduce Professor Vaughn, but three panels after he's introduced, mm-hmm. he is literally shown to be laughing to himself, going, "Excellent, the knowledge that's so delicious, a mechanism of the accelerator is available, but denied to him will drive Richards into even greater depths of despair and confusion. My plan is working perfectly. Yeah, it's not subtle in the slightest, and yeah. it's wonderful. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and so there is the what I love is is that depending on how clued in you are, burn like really gives away the game and then just sort of allows the teasing out. And that's one of the things that I also is fun about this is burn is like very quick. The, the, a much shorter period of time than you would think is the, here's the impossible situation. How are the FF going to get out of it? You know, and also lots of lovely little character moments. It's, really it's just it's just again it's really good and it's not it's just so remarkably unlazy burn is working so hard here and he also knows that this is the perfect setting to hit all those character moments you've got ben Grimm, who's been promised you know who essentially has the happy life that he's always wanted and it's revealed to be a farce and he has to make the decision whether or not he's going to go back you know and, well I, that's just it it's a decision for him yes. because for the other characters it isn't for the other characters they're like oh this isn't real we have to get back and ben has the wonderful moment of going why do i why should i go back if i go yeah. back i'm a monster but more importantly i'm not married to alicia and she is blind yeah 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 well and and also again the weird subtextual thing that Burn has kind of going on here where he's kind of having it both ways, but there's a little bit of an element of part of why, like when Ben finds out that the whole thing is a farce, he goes off in a blind rage and they're worried about him. And yeah, yeah. there's a little bit of a thing where he, he's, um, Basically says, like, Alicia breaks in sobbing and says, like, Ben and I were up half the night. He says, if all this is a sham created by my stepfather, then he and I are not really married. He was so angry. He said he'd kill my stepfather. Said he'd taken all Ben's dreams and turned them into something dirty. There's something really kind of interesting there. Like, I feel like Byrne is more or less saying that part of what, Ben is pissed off about is is that he and Alicia have had sex out of wedlock, you know. Oh, that's that's uh, there's another moment there where it's like it's almost explicit. Yeah, he 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 goes I on. And he says, I can't find it, but there is another line somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I where, love Alicia Reed. I think I have from the moment I laid eyes on her way back. But the thing can't love her, and. I think, you know, I think he's being very explicit there in that sense of what he's saying. Like, he goes on to do the, yeah, my arms might crush her. But what I think he's really saying is, is like, we can't have sex and we can have sex here. And and that's that's something I love her and that's something that I want. And it's really kind of interesting that Byrne is, 
it's it's going there. <laughs> it, yeah, the burn is going there, but he's really trying to go there in a way that makes it again is um you know, burns burns a real weirdo. I well, you know, People are not surprised to know that Chris Claremont is a real weirdo. And Byrne had a way of complaining about Claremont in interviews for years afterwards, where essentially he felt that Claremont's perversions got in the way of a good story, but also that Byrne was very much like, I'm a Victorian, you know? And yet, if you look at the type of shit that Byrne puts in his stories, I think he really means he's like a real Victorian, in that he's obsessed with sex, but he's really annoyed when other people talk about it, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, let's also bear in mind that when Byrne complained about Claremont's fetishes getting in the way, more often than not, he wasn't actually complaining about fetishes as much as he was complaining about Byrne's feminism. Uh, oh, about oh Claremont's, Claremont's feminism. feminism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Well, he means he, he means he would both. complain that he but he would always complain in interviews that Claremont wanted to give the woman agency and backstory. Yes. Well, like but, more than anything else, even more than the mind control shit, that was what seemed to upset Byrne, which has always been hilarious to me. I, I I totally agree with you, and yet the weird I agree with you, and yet there's weird again, there's weird shit to peel apart there. Because Byrne is upset about that but Byrne is clearly interested in in making you know especially with what he's doing here in sue he's not interested in a retrograde take on sue at least not at this point maybe later on it really kicks in but what it i think what bothers Byrne is is that claremont is being celebrated for giving women agency as if he cares about women having agency and what bothers Byrne is it's like, no, that gives Chris Claremont a boner. Like Claremont, as far as Byrne is concerned, doesn't care about women's agency as like a right for women. He cares about it because it's sexually arousing to him, you know? I I think I disagree with you on that one. Okay. That, that, fair enough. Well, I, mean, by, I should say what I'm disagreeing with is – I think I'm disagreeing with Byrne is upset because it gives Claremont a boner. Not that it gives Claremont a boner. No, no, no. I, I, I don't. Wait, which part are you upset by? No, 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 no. He's not upset. He's <laughs> not. I don't think he's that upset that, that Claremont, that it gives Claremont a boner. It, it upsets him that Claremont is being praised for something that he's not really doing as far as Byrne's concerned. You see what I'm saying? Like he's being praised that Chris Claremont is he's he's upset that Chris Claremont is being praised for creating strong women characters, you know, for quote unquote the right reasons. You know, it what bothers Burn isn't so much that Claremont's doing it. It isn't so much that Claremont's doing it because he has a boner. What bothers him is is that Claremont is seen as better than John Byrne for it. You know. That, that Claremont is being seen as a better person and is gets some sort of moral, higher moral grounds for essentially being misunderstood, you know? And I think that really chaps Burns Hyde in, a, in an amazing way. But, I mean, because this is, again, this is, like, where things get confusing, but aren't the rumors that, like, John Byrne is the guy who left his first wife for his second wife because his second wife looked more like the type of women that John Byrne was drawing and look 
and uh, looks attractive? Like, am I? I have mis- never heard that in my life. Uh, okay. I've never heard that. <laughs> I th- Welcome I, to I, Baxter I Building, spreading case, John Byrne slander since 2017. Yeah, exactly. Allegedly, that might be a rumor that Jeff might have heard. We're not saying that definitely happens. It is totally true. It is totally true. When I heard it, I heard that it was unattributed. It was not attributed to a specific com- creator that they had dumped their first wife and married their second wife because that character, the the second wife, looked like the character that they were drawing. Never heard it attached to Byrne's name. That's me making some very unfortunate and, again, non-libelous assumptions and allegations that I'm not saying are based in fact. <laughs> nonetheless, it's pretty interesting that Byrne is kind of saying... <laughs> nonetheless. Yeah, nonetheless, it's kind of interesting that, that seriously, that, that Ben... That, of all the various reasons that Ben has had for I don't want to turn back into the thing, this is probably the best and strongest one that he's kind of got going on, you know? What is also interesting is after you have that scene and you have him decide to go back anyway, mm-hmm. that is then immediately followed by Alicia saying, I've always known you look like this. Yes. It's such a, but it's such a strange moment mm-hmm. because it, theoretically alters the dynamic a lot yeah but i also couldn't get out of my head what happens later in burn trump with alicia yeah yeah well uh yeah i was like uh, you're like this is both very sweet but also i know what you're doing later (laughs) <laughs> right well for what it's what it's worth like an issue or two later you have been saying like kind of starting down the road of being like alicia loves the thing i'm not sure she loves ben Grimm, and where and how and what that leads to later i know i know what i suspect i know what you're talking about but yeah let's let's get there uh this is just a really strong great little issue the the all the setup of like the ff and here they are they're happy but they're not really happy what's really going on and then how do they get out of it spoilers it involves them getting their powers back but then they're really small and they have to do lots of really small cool stuff is it's it's fun also again i i have absolutely no complaints with burns characterization of doom like doom is pretty much dead on and plays into very much the way that i i feel about doom uh which is at several points people talk about you know, Sue has a thought balloon where she's like, his ego is incredible. He refuses to give even the smallest credit to Reed's genius. And I think there's a little, there's so much there. The idea that Doom is obsessed with proving that Richards is inferior to him without even trying to acknowledge that he's inferior. Like he's got that weird neurotic blind spot. Byrne clearly has an understanding and an appreciation for it. So... Um, so, uh, do you have anything else you want to point out before I get to the, the, my embarrassing and annoying, uh, meta text? I, I am dying to hear your meta text about this. Okay. So this is something that actually kind of weirded me out in the, um, when you get the revelation of Dr. Doom, like luring, you know, literally rising over Littleville, um, and gloating and then you get to the next panel uh the next page which is part two if this be doomsday and you have the ff all kind of 
inverted and plugged into little computer equipment. Actually, interestingly enough, Franklin has to be in there and Alicia is too. Uh, across this little small town, you know, there's something about the way the town looks and the machinery surrounding it and even the characters surrounding it that kind of made me, that kind of gave a ping of recognition. And uh, people who follow the Wait What podcast um, know that very recently I sold off my entire comic book collection. Uh, the reason why I mentioned this is I was like, oh shit, I know where I've seen this before or have I? And then spent like desperate minutes combing the internet trying trying to find it. There's a point in this story where Vince Vaughn, well, Dr. Doom basically says, like, you know, I took, you know, of course I gave the stuff to the puppet master. He's like, who else could have taken the childish plot of Philip's master and crafted it into the perfect vengeance against his most hated enemy? Who but Dr. Doom? Now, I don't think that John Byrne is doing this on any conscious level, but he's basically saying... I took this really dumb idea by this other person and I made it completely awesome. <laughs> and John Byrne is saying this about an idea that he took from Jack Kirby because follow me here. As you may remember, Graham, there is a, an amazing story by Jack Kirby in Jimmy Olsen, Superman's pal, where Superman and Jack Kirby uh, and Jimmy Jimmy Olsen, <laughs> that'd be great. Jack Kirby, Superman's pal. Uh, Jimmy Olsen and Superman discover the world of Transylvania, which is a mini world which has tiny aliens living on it, and they've been programmed into thinking that the reality is something that it's not, and it's a horror movie. So they've all turned themselves into like werewolves and vampires, and at the end of it, Superman basically reprograms the world by putting on a musical at the end. But the idea of a miniature world and reality that is being controlled and manipulated by a giant uh, is essentially this issue. You know, Byrne has taken a plot from Kirby, a silly, stupid plot, and turned it into an awesome story the same way that Doctor Doom has taken the puppet master's silly idea and turn it into his perfect revenge weapon. That is amazing. <laughs> Cause here's the thing, you know, that burn has read that Jimmy Olsen. Story. Like, you know, that that's, yeah. it's not a coincidence. You know, that burn has done it because burn burns love of Kirby is, is legendary. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. He clearly knows the story. He clearly, he, he either is, not aware or he's he's poking some fun at himself i i tend to think that it's the latter but part of me is also not entirely unsure that it's oh yeah the i i i totally think it's the former mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I so totally think it's the former. <laughs> part of it, like to the point where we were like i don't think it's the latter part of me wants to be like really <laughs> <laughs> well because because i think there is something with burn that i'm like I, I don't know. Like, I, how do I put it? If it was a few years later down the road, I would absolutely believe Byrne 100% capable of being arrogant enough to make those comparisons, you know, and 
not see them, I suppose. But here there's just something where part of me is like, uh, I don't, I don't really know. But, you know, but maybe like John, the John Byrne of this era, again, post uncanny X-Men is pretty goddamn cocky. And this is coming just a few issues after, like I said, the story of Skip Collins, who is a comic reader, or as you mentioned, a comic creator who basically is tied into doing the same thing over and over and over again for decades. And Byrne is completely convinced that is not going to be him, brother, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and yet dot, dot, dot. So, um, so I, I, like I said, I'm shocked, Graham. I didn't think you were going to go with that meta text at all. I was like, here comes our big fight. <sighs> it happened. No, no, not, nope. <laughs> I'm going with that meta text and I'm finding it fucking fascinating. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. That's, that's what I'm here for. So, uh, should uh, we... I, I, yes. going on to 237, yes. as, as we're about to do, reminds me that I actually skipped over my favorite part of 235. Ooh. Which is the Frankie Ray subplot when she gets out of the shower and looks at herself in the mirror naked and just freaks out. Yes, that is great, isn't it? Which is the, the funniest thing. Yeah. Here is what is particularly funny about it for me personally. The, the caption in the comic is uh, she catches a glimpse of herself in the mirror and her thoughts trail off to nothing. Her heart pounds against her ribs. Her brain reels for suddenly Frankie Ray knows she knows and you see a uh, close-up of her looking shocked mm-hmm. uh, i first read that comic without reading it i first saw that comic when i was on vacation in denmark and i read it in danish wow. so i didn't read any of the dialogue uh-huh. and I, it took years for me to read it in english wow and so for the longest time i thought that there was i genuinely did not like i was like is she just scared of something she's seen in her room what is going on and then when i finally read i was like wait she's scared of her own naked body what the fuck is this comic yeah see what i what i think is fascinating about it again is this weird thing that burn he's clearly the subtext is is very much like yeah frankie ray is is discovered her own nudity and is terrified by it. And yet, because, again, of the way that he's drawing it, where she looks in the mirror, uh, uh, the the hall, the doorway mirror, and in theory sees herself, because he says she catches a glimpse of herself in the mirror and her thoughts trail off to nothing. But burn for whatever reason, perhaps because it would mean show, nudity and or giving things away, he doesn't show her at all in the mirror. So I had this moment of like, Frankie Ray's invisible? Like, I really was not following this. Like, I, I know... Well, I, I know and the reveal doesn't happen for another few issues. Oh, thing. yeah. Like, I, I, it doesn't, she doesn't appear in 236 at all, and it doesn't happen in 237. Yeah, 237 is the fucking amazing sequence where he comes over to see Frankie, and Frankie's like, I gotta show you something, and he strips, strips naked, and he's like, What? You know, I mean, it really is, it's kind of interesting. It, if if Frankie Ray was a hermaphrodite, it would not be surprising at all at this point. So Well, but also, it looks like uh, Johnny has never seen anyone naked. No, exactly. You know I mean? Like, the way it's done, it's like, Johnny is just stunned that she is naked. He's yeah. like, are those breasts? Wow, I can't <laughs> believe it. What's happening? Yeah, no, it's, Burns clearly having fun with it. You know, again, it's kind of it's kind of wacky, but um, 
So yeah, uh, issue 237 is called The Eyes Have It. Um, and it is, again, it's it's not a done one. It picks, it takes the events from the previous issue. Like, you've got Doctor Doom. He is in some sort of coma. The FF don't know why. But well, Reed but, is but like... He, but we, the reader does. We do, the but they don't, which I think is an interesting and, choice. And we should also explain the reason that... Uh, Doom appears to be in a coma, is that his consciousness is trapped in the puppet world that the Fantastic Four were just trapped in. That's because right. the puppet master basically got back at Doom by trapping his his mind there. What is hilarious to me is that the FF don't do anything like, maybe we should seek help for him. Instead, they're like, maybe we should just put his body in a vault. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this, this one of the things I think is interesting is we have the return of... Reed Richards omniscient, uh, but we also have the return in a very light way of Reed Richards, the asshole slash something's not right in that guy's head. Like one of the things yeah, I Reed, found Reed, Reed Richards science dick comes back. Yes. Yeah. Byrne really thinks that Reed Richards science dick is an important part of the Reed Richards character. And so you get the sequences like is it it's in issue 236 again once Reed has found out that uh they are robots and that his brilliant brain has been blinkered I'm sorry synthoclones his brilliant brain has been kept from uh realizing things by basically being given artificial ADD he comes up with a plan to give them cosmic ray poisoning jump starting again but there's a panel of him calculating what it has to be and sue's like hey do you want something to eat you haven't eaten in in like days or something and he's like get the hell out of here like and it's it's very he's shown in darkness he's like gripping his head and it, it, it's it, it, it yeah. you know you say get the hell out of here but the line is actually something like sue go away yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's very direct. It's very harsh. Yes. Yeah, it's it's very much. And and he, um, Byrne gives him a little more explanation. Like, he has him say something like, uh, like. Like, you, I'm, I'm working on something very important and you're going to just distract me and I can't, yes, you know. This exactly. Is be, this is life death. Yeah. But it, it's, but nonetheless, it is Sue being like, are you all right? And him being like, fuck off. Yeah. Yeah, I yes, please go away Susan. I must calculate the tiniest detail of my plan if it is to succeed. I cannot be interrupted. And so, yeah, it's again, there's something there's probably some some fodder there in that the return of Reed Richard Science Dick is is important to Burns' understanding of the character and also uh important to as I think that scene sort of hints at um Reed and Seuss relationship, I suppose, mm -hmm. you know, but, uh, anywho, uh, two thirty-seven. the eyes have it, uh, ends up with Reed Richard science stick being like, yeah, Dr. Doom's in a coma. We can't risk him coming back and getting us. So I'm shoving him in essentially a black light box that is the total blackness indicated the field is now activated. Even the photons of light rays are trapped against the field, allowing no light to be reflected back. Like, that sounds like an incredibly creepy place to put somebody. 
you know? Right? Especially, mm-hmm. like, this guy's in a coma. Let's stick him in a box where nothing will escape, not even light. Yeah, it's really, I have to say, like, um, I still think that Civil War is, like, a huge load of shite, but there's part of me where Miller's like, yeah, Reed Richards is totally going to build a super prison out in the negative zone that they're going to throw anyone who doesn't agree with them. I'm like, bullshit, Mark Miller. And now I'm kind of like, eh, maybe. Nah, could I... No, no, really. Bull- yeah. Bullshit, Mark Miller. So... <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, come on. Well, no, because 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 Miller plot hammers that thing like a motherfucker. But you know, there's a there's a, John John Byrne would like turn like a a lovely plum color with um, from the vehemence <laughs> with which he would explain why Reed Richards would not do that to former superheroes and allies. But still, yeah. Uh, Graham, I, I want to summarize the I, issue, but I have no no power of speech really at any point. So maybe you should do it. I don't know. Well, Can you? Before we do that, I want to say that yeah. two thirty seven is also uh, has the panels that I was thinking of in two thirty six, where thing basically says, "Yeah, we Alicia and I fucked, and I don't like it." Um, yeah. Oh, Alicia says, is... mm-hmm. "Troubled, my darling. Are you still fretting over what happened while we were prisoners of Doctor Doom?" That's and he right. says. No, yeah, oh, I don't know, Alicia. Maybe I'm too old-fashioned, but I just don't feel right about it all. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, as close to saying, hey, you guys, yeah, we fucked and I'm not comfortable with it, as he can get in the comic. What happens this issue is, while Johnny goes to see Frankie, who is like, you've been gone for a few weeks, and by the way, here's my breasts, and Johnny is stunned johnny's exact response is to say holy and then the caption goes since they first met long months ago johnny has wondered at the air of mystery which seems to surround the girl called frankie ray what does he ponder he has pondered could her secret be now he knows anyway while that is going on uh reed and sue and franklin are having a day out that is interrupted by a jewelry heist by a bunch of hobos and a very tall alien who gives everyone vertigo and seems to be drunk is, is the implication. Yeah. Franklin uses his superpowers, which are entirely inconsistent, but this time he can make the alien be hurt. She collapses. She's carried away by the hobos. It turns out when Reed and Sue recover that the alien has left, uh, what are they called? Uh, aluminum lead. Aluminum oh, yeah. lead alloy. Mm-hmm. Uh, balls with covered in an alien alloy behind uh they go and confront the hobos and the alien again it turns out guess what that she is drunk because air makes her drunk because she's an alien she thought that she was stealing the metal she needed to uh, fix her spaceship and paying for it and reads because he has a universal translator which a of course he does because that kind of makes sense but b it's actually put in a great editorial note for those who wonder why so many alien races seem to speak English. You can lampshade too much. And yes. I, I think that, that kind of is lampshading a bit oh, too much. Oh, completely. Completely. Although I, I have to say, like, j- just to jump back, there's some remarkable lampshading here. Like, I don't know if you remember, but the the scene in the uh, Human Torches standalone issue where the prisoners walk down and put to death, they reference how much it's not like a movie like four times on one page like it's 
again, Burn when there, the times where Burn goes too far over, he goes really too far over. So turns out she's like, "Oh, you guys, I'm just trying to fix my spaceship." He's like, "Oh, I can do that. I'm a genius, don't you know?" And the end of the story, the end of the issue. Yeah, uh, that, that is that is the majority of the plot. There is a brief interlude early on where Ben says, "I'm really upset that I had sex with Alicia, and I'm going to solve it by lifting weights." Mm-hmm. And that seems to solve it. So sure, I guess. Yeah. Um, but that that's that's your issue, people. It's uh, I, I made it sound very dull, but again, it's it's a perfectly fine issue. Yeah, it's, it is. It's probably one of the it's probably the weakest of the six, to be honest. Yes, but uh, it it does it does the job completely well. It it it's the the again the character moments are the bits that sell it. Uh, yeah. I love seeing Reed and Sue on their date. Yes, as much as I make I'm making fun of the Johnny subplot, it's totally fun. Yeah, uh, it it's and again. As you were saying, the alien is drunk and thinks they're buying something is right out of a 1950s Superman comic. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And in fact, it's sort of um, Burns design for her name. They call her Spinneret, the the gang of um, hobos, essentially, who have convinced her to rob things. She's to me, it looks a lot like if you had Steve Ditko draw Infectious Lass, you know? There's just such oh a God. that's that's an amazingly deep cut, but I can totally see what you're saying. Yeah, you know, it's kind of it's a really weird look, but again, the fun, the fact that Burn does the vertigo panels of showing people getting hit by her little vertigo ray, and the way that all the circles are slightly skewed cross sections of the person mm. is again just. It's a lovely graphic. It's just yeah. a great visual. I do want to say, I wonder if there is something, if there's a way, because I was really also thrown by the, yeah, we fucked. Uh, I'm a little uh, upset about it. And then Ben is kind of like, I can't shake the feeling it's the thing you really love, not Ben Grimm. And then there's this whole thing where he's basically lifting these weights and it's clearly supposed to be a moment of high drama and he breaks the machine and then he feels better. And you're like, what's going on there? Yeah, what actually happened to this page? Because it makes no sense. The weird part is there's a way in which I think it can make sense and it depends on how much you want to fall down this weirdo hidey hole. <laughs> oh, explain your rabbit hole, Jeff, because it doesn't make sense to me. Okay, so in the previous issue, you've got Ben and Alicia as as what they think are humans there's little tiny synthoclones they're married they're having sex when they find out that it's all a lie um ben more or less flips out you know as we as i just mentioned a few minutes ago when he becomes the thing again one of the things that he says is oh it's kind of nice feeling strong again you know like it, once he he runs around and he's like doing stuff, he's like, yeah, I guess it's kind of good to be to have strength. Mm -hmm. Similarly, you have this whole thing where he's talking about feeling uncomfortable about the stuff that happened with them, where they more or less had sex, and then essentially Ben is so strong that he breaks the machine. This is going to sound incredibly creepy, and I apologize, but I think that oh, part, 
uh, part of what's going what the way Byrne is making this spin is the idea that that Alicia quote unquote doesn't love Ben the way she quote unquote loves the thing is as the as the thing they can't have sex but he has strength when they're Ben and Alicia they can have sex but Alicia's not digging it so essentially Ben's like I'm breaking the machine here it feels good to be strong is dealing with the fact that Ben is aware that he is sexually inadequate as Ben Grimm for Alicia and he doesn't know why and again if you think about sort of the stuff that later on happens with where Byrne takes Alicia later down the way that I you know know of but didn't actually read the issue so I could be far off there's basically this idea that Ben is like he wants to be human but as human He's maybe, I guess, the traditional, if you want to be like a Freudian, Victorian sort of fellow like Byrne proclaims himself to be, uh, Ben Grimm might be a little under average. Like he might have been overcompensating all of these years for a certain lack of something. Uh, And so when he becomes the thing, the fact that he is strong, the fact that he is virile in a way that has nothing to do with sexuality is for himself a kind of relief. That's almost where I think that scene is going. I know it doesn't make any sense, but again, this, well, or it makes sense, but in a weird skeevy way, but the juxtaposition of Ben being like, uh, I'm troubled. Oh wait, I just broke this fucking machine with my strength. I feel great now is kind of maybe what's going on i this is the one i think you're reading too into to be honest <laughs> well to, uh, to be fair but, this theory but, uh, yeah, yeah. occurred to me like seconds ago so i'm i'm yeah okay and, and also but also to be fair maybe dots because you know it's it's not like john Vernon is is uh unknown to go into very strange places yeah with with his his uh meta text yeah, so especially who can with tell? And also, meta text, you know, and it and it also it really doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Like outside, like that reading at least makes it seem logical if skeevy. Right. I can't think of another reading that I can't make either. It seem... Like when I read it, I'm like, what the fuck was the point of that? Like it really actually reads like a sequence where, um, where the the book is being plotted by an artist and the writer comes in after the fact and is trying to figure out what's going on or to make the make the give the story some kind of the scene some kind of thrust you know what i mean like it feels like it really does feel like stanley bullshitting over a sequence he can't remember what jack told him was supposed to be happening you know except it's one guy so yeah i I, i'm yeah i'm right there with it because it it, it, there is just there is no common sense it otherwise mm-hmm. um but no I, I again it's it's probably the weakest of the the six we're talking about but yeah. again it works just fine like it works, it's yeah. the weakest of the six but it's still better than anything we covered in the previous episode oh completely or maybe the previous two episodes so or yeah. maybe even three so yeah it's it is it's it is strong also it is the issue where we get we have the frankie subplot we've got what looks like a Ben and Alicia subplot that's kind of building there or not. 
and then you also have the subplot of Frankie, uh, Frankie, of Franklin um, actually manifesting his powers and saying so in front of Reed and Reed being like, wait, you what? You you hurt her? What? So I don't know where that ends up going. I really don't, which is kind of interesting. I, I, I Yeah, I actually kind of remember where that ends up going, which makes me wonder, maybe it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just just Burn wanting to put those pieces back on the table, you know. But but six issues in, this feels like a transformed book. Oh yeah, oh you yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. The 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 feeling of the, the this book feels fun again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels like it has a sense of momentum. It mm-hmm. feels like it has an identity, and part of that identity is sort of pulpy space sci-fi. Yeah, and you know, it's space, but pulpy sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Um. These are not particularly superhero comics. No. And what's interesting is that Munch and Sienkiewicz issues aren't really superhero comics either, but they were edging closer towards uh, supernatural and horror, mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. which didn't really work for the book. Mm-hmm. And the, the sci-fi angle very much works for the book because Fantastic Four was a sci-fi book. Yes. Well, and I think Burns really aware of that. And Burns also, again, is a guy who is has he's it's not it's not sort of lazy sci-fi like we say pulp you say pulp but i really want to reinforce the idea this is the pulp of the 50s not the pulp of the 30s and 40s like it's not space opera stuff it is much more grounded in the sort of stuff that you were reading during the heyday of the ace doubles or whatever or you know when (laughs) god help me when old what's his name edited an old what's it the the infamous science mag science fiction magazine and insisted that the science be you know um, good you know solid except for the one gimme you know burn is kind of like okay putting the ff aside is their own thing here's my one gimme for my science and watch me go you know mm-hmm. it's fun mm-hmm. it's really it is it, it definitely does remind you that the ff is a sci-fi comic and to that extent like having a guy who knows or woman who knows sci-fi really helps you know like who really is a good sign it would if slash won this the fantastic four return having someone who has a really solid grasp of science would be great you know yeah yeah so but no it's it's a wonderful re-energizing of the book and of the concept i think and it's kind of amazing how, I mean, I guess six months isn't really quickly, quote unquote, but when you think of how long this book has not been feeling right, right. like this book hasn't felt particularly strong since issue 200. So you're talking almost three years. Three years. Yeah, pretty much three years. That is that is a long time. Uh, yeah, right. no. And I mean, and if you look at it again, there's that just even if we just read issue 232 on its own, we'd be like, that's a pretty goddamn strong, you know, story um, right off the bat. I, I, I mean, and to then essentially keep it up for the next six months yeah. and in every with every issue still keep away from the, uh, the superhero tropes. Yep. No, it's interesting seeing, in a way, the things that I think Byrne was very attentive to what was going on when he was drawing the book earlier. Even the two-parter that he writes and draws that uh, 
that everyone pointed out was supposed to be was it a freebie like or a something? Yeah, like a Coca Cola comic or something that that was retrofitted into two issues of the the regular series. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even that which was strong and close to this still somehow wasn't as strong. Like I really appreciated the fact that Byrne in many ways was doing an apprenticeship before he stepped in here. And so consequently it's, it's shockingly solid right from the get go. And again, it has so much verve. The fact that someone is going to walk out of the gate and be like, yeah, I'm going to kick your asses and I'm going to kick your asses by again, doing mostly done in ones like that's, and done really? in ones that are outside of the expected genre. Like, yeah. that's the part I can't get around. Because his first two issues, I mean, the first one is relatively in keeping, but his yeah. second issue is a fucking, you know, a, a morality play. Yeah. And his third issue is, is a spirit story. Right. And, like, and as you point out, like, they, they have as much to do, like, those, those issue two and issue three of his run have as, are as beholden to Will Eisner as they are to Lee and Kirby. And that's astounding yeah there's just there is a lot of um you know uh, there's there's a a lot of ambition and a lot of um almost arrogance in in what burns doing and he earns it like which is again it's it's a it's a really remarkable achievement these first six issues i'm really kind of knocked out by somebody who would i think i had only read I think I want to say the Diablo issue and the terror in the tiny in a ter- tiny town, and you know, like them and had vague memories of like, oh yeah, that's that's a little bit of all right, you know. But the rest of it, it's all just like, yeah, fucking fucking hell, John Byrne, you go for it. So, and it it makes you, uh, or at least it made me want to read more and exactly. want to see what he does next mm-hmm. do you know what i mean which mm-hmm. which let's be honest has not been a feeling we've had in bikes in bikes building for a while one of the things that fascinates me graham is is that we haven't had that feeling in a while and for you in some ways like a long while like i know that you liked to, the run up to 200 but in some ways that was i like that the, was a surprise right i like the issues between 150 and 192 a lot more than you did um yeah, yeah, but you didn't read ahead past two thirty-seven this time. Oh no, I did. I did. I, I read. I of read course you did. <laughs> of course but you did. Mind, I was like, like this mind, is going to be. The I've time. also, but I've also read these issues before. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? Like I've read this stuff uh, a, a lot of times by this point. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. This this is probably my the burn run is probably my third favorite Fantastic Four run. Right, right. Jesus. This is going to be interesting then, because we're really moving into territory that you know very well, and yet Jeff's the guy who's going to be cutting you off and blabbing. So, sorry, everybody. I'm I'm totally looking forward to that. (laughs) Well, the other thing is, uh, I'm trying to think of a nice way of saying this. The quality does not hold up. I'm kind of worried about that. Burn starts becoming burn. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And 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 the, the bads burn tropes for want of a better way but yeah uh, and those are the ones coming. that i remember where i was like i picked them up and started putting them down because i'm like ah so yeah it'll be really interesting to see see that transition it'll be it'll be super sad making for me because i really was i knew i was like oh yeah sure i was kind of expecting these to not be for me kind of 
you know, I was going to be like, okay, this will be a nice reversal after all the issues where I was like, yeah, George Perez. And you're like, yeah, I know. Right. George Perez, you know, it was going to be a great reversal, but I really dug these. So I'm surprised. And I kind of wanted to stick around for a little bit before it all goes to seed. So I, I think it does, but I mean, I won't say it's, it's strong through like 250. Well, and I mean, Burn has a comparatively, it's a long run on this book, right? It's, yeah, he goes all he goes all the way up to like two ninety three or something. Yeah, he doesn't quite make it to three hundred. I remember that, but he he's, goes he's off before the he's off before the twenty fifth anniversary issue. Wow! But interestingly enough, um, he the twenty fifth anniversary issue, which is officially plotted by Jim Shooter, follows Burn's plot. Burn gave an interview to Marvel Age where he explained the plot in detail. Wow. Uh, and it's that plot. Okay. Man. Oh. Oh, Shooter and Marvel. Marvel's Shooter. My goodness. What an era. But yeah. Um, shit. Yeah, he comes in like it's 232. He does. He's going to be doing close to five years on the book. That's. I would like to think that there's going to be a, a good chunk of time before it kind of goes. Wah, wah. Yeah, it's it's. I'm not sure if it's a good chunk of time, but there's 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 a, there are good issues. What do you know? What I mean, like, because I it's by saying 250, I'm essentially just saying like we're like a year away from from it going downhill. Oh shit! Uh, so you really do mean like right after 250? I'm like, oh okay, he's saying that like 250 well, no, no, is like a high I, point. But I, then... I'm not sure I am. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Like, I it, it, I was going to say like it depends on your definition of what downhill means, but mm-hmm. definitely by. I want to say the 270s or something, it feels like a very different book sure. than the way it feels right now. Right. Because at some point, Burn starts moving into multi-part stories, and then he really does start falling into many of the same problems that Wolfman had with multi-part stories, for example. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Plus, Burn, I isn't it during his run on Fantastic Four that he more or less makes the announcement, like, I'm changing my drawing style, and I know that's going to upset you guys, but um, uh, it's time for a change, and here's why I'm doing it. Doesn't that happen during his FF? I don't know that, so maybe. Hmm. Okay. Like, it's definitely not in the stories, but that doesn't mean that he didn't, like, do it. And his drawing style visibly changes. Visibly changes, and I feel like he addresses it in a letters page of an FF, but but maybe I'm wrong. Okay. Well, we will find out together. Graham, do you want to tell us what we're reading next time and, and begin closing this up? So, yeah, so I was going to say the next time we do 10 issues. 10 issues. Okay. 10 issues. 238 uh, so to 248, be, right? Or or am I doing uh, that classic, like it should be 7, right? Yeah, because I do that. Yeah, 247. Okay. Because that takes us through uh, a run of stories, uh, but doesn't leave us on a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because we're heading into multi-part stories pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're also, you'll be excited to know, heading into Doctor Doom multi-part stories very soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that way we get through a bunch of issues, but not I don't feel too many issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, next month we will be doing 238 through 247. For some reason, that's very hard for me to say. 238 through 247. <laughs> In the meantime... You might be wondering what you can do until then, besides reading Fantastic Four comics. Uh, we will be back next week with a new Wait What episode. 
So you could listen to that. In the meantime of that, you can find show notes for this episode at waitbotpodcast.com. You can find just random fun comic book images at waitbotpods.tumblr.com. You can find us on Twitter at waitbotpodcast. And you can find Jeff on Twitter at lazybastard at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. You can find me on Twitter at Graham M at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. You can also find us and support us uh, on our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash waitwhatpodcast. Uh, Bax Building exists purely because of the support of our amazingly generous patrons. But because I've said the magic word Patreon, Jeff is eager to say the following words. I am. I'm just dancing about to thank all of our patrons, including the kind crew at American Ninth Art Studios, as well as Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, to whom we are especially grateful to for their continuing support of Baxter Building and Wait What, and uh, because one or both uh, are not a shadowy cabal slash intergalactic feline capable of crushing us in a mighty paw. Thank you. Thank you. But- thank you. But which is which, Jeff? Oh, I can't. I. I. am not at liberty to say, Graham. I'm just not. I. I think you all know what we're saying, people. <laughs> uh, we'll be back in a month for a box building, and we'll be back in a week for a wait what. But until then, Jeff Lester. Oh yes. Oh my God. I had a closing tagline. I'm like, yes, Graham. Yes. Oh yes. Come yes. On. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next time. Oh. You know, that's one of the things that bums me out is uh, the fact that this show is called Baxter Building and we finally find out who built the Baxter Building in these issues. You know, Wait, we do? Yeah, issue 234, no. the Eisner issue, which has uh, Skip Collins. He goes to New York and as a tourist, you see him holding up a, uh, a, a tour guide and he's reading... The Baxter Building, renowned as headquarters of the Fantastic Four, was built in 1961 by millionaire industrialist Jackson Lee Baxter. Although the structure has been greatly modified and strengthened by Reed Richards, leader of the FF, it still remains a remarkable example of the building block school of architectural design. Wow. (laughs) That's great. Isn't that wonderful? Like, I read that. I'm like, oh, my God, I got to remember to mention that. So, yes. Everyone, we will see you next time in the lobby of Joseph Lee Baxter's building.